Here we go. Okay, off and running. October the 5th, 2014, lecture discussion number 171. And if you were here last week, you might remember that we diverted uh, quite a bit uh, into Genesis 38, uh, Judah and Tamar, and, and Judah's, uh, I'm sorry, Tamar's two dead sons. Ah, sorry, Judah's two dead sons. Eventually, we get to uh, Tamar's uh, twins, but we had the pledge of security that Tamar demanded from Judah. It ultimately guaranteed her life, so you have this pledge that guarantees life. Judah has a confession, and again, those, those twins of Tamar are born. The first one's hand comes out, a scarlet cord is wrapped around his hand to identify him as the oldest one. But then the youngest twin, the youngest son, somehow breaches by uh, the older and comes out first and reverses the order. And you have that younger passing the older theme uh, revisited there in Tamar. And that immediately, of course, transfers Back to Rebecca. We covered all of that in a bit, bit more because Tamar has this uh, fantastic relationship, direct relationship to Rahab. Both were harlots. Both were given a token that guaranteed their life, the true token. In the case of Rahab, the pledge of security with respect to Tamar, a cord in both of those uh, elements. And that saves them and their families and their children specifically. Both Rahab and Tamar are non-Jews. They're not Jewish, but yet they are in the Messianic line. They're greatly honored by God. And both believe what they heard. Tamar uh, believed what she heard, which uh, obviously came from Judah. They, and Rahab believed what she heard from the two messengers and others about God's grace, His mercy, and His power, His omnipotence, uh, to, to, use, uh, to be redundant there. And, ta- and so we have... That putting together with Ruth and Bathsheba, because in Matthew 1, I have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba all together in the Messianic line, none of them Jewish, four Gentile women, and that becomes the question of the Gentile women uh, in Matthew 1, which is a very, very important thing to know. Okay, that pretty much was the last week. And now we're going to move forward a bit in our journey to solve this. The older will serve the younger. What does that mean? That causes lots of problems because God's definitions of words and our definition of words is not always the same. When we think serve, we assume what? Superiority or inferiority. God doesn't necessarily mean that, and we have to solve what it is. It is quoted in Scripture often, and it becomes very important, and unfortunately, it is often misunderstood. Yes, you know, (coughs) excuse me, that is Romans 9, 12 through 13. The older will serve the younger, and I'll say it this way, Israel I have loved, Edom I have loved less. Now, Romans says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But I rewarded it, didn't I? I? I did not quote it precisely. I put it into its national context for the benefit of those who have just joined us. I believe the national context is the correct context. I said so a few months back, and feel free to go find that. Uh, it's somewhere on the Internet. As you know, um, and I talked about this in the announcement portion of what we call the pregame here, Cliffside. Uh, Supper Dave is the active force behind the Cliffside page at Sermon Audio. This is for you folks on the Internet. And he reports that we had uh, almost uh, 1,900, almost 2,000 downloads, downloads on that site alone last month. Ben and Kurt primarily manage uh, Cliffside.org and Podbean and iTunes. Anyway, with the... Uh, 1,800 plus downloads or more comes a flurry of emails. As soon as that hit, I got my emails began to perk up a little bit. And 90% are very positive and gracious. Uh, we had a gentleman from Singapore uh, write that was really wonderful amongst uh, quite a few others. And they're delightful to receive, and they're very encouraging. And we need encouragement here, that's uh, to say the least. That sometimes small churches can feel very alone. But um, 
those emails that are encouraging are wonderful to get. And as you you might not know this, you folks, but I read almost all of them at some point to the uh, congregation here. I think it's important that they know about you. Uh, but as you know, along with the wonderful, uplifting mail, uh, comes what? That's right, the hate mail. And make no mistake, I am not welcome in many, many quarters. Uh, uh, I'm not a popular person. I know that's shocking. It's just inexplicable. But this week's typical example comes from a lady who is not subtle, and she does not stutter. So I brought it. Let me see if I can find it here. Here it is. (laughs) She writes the following. What, in all caps, by the way, what a useless sermon. It's amazing that you have nothing to give relating to this dispensation. What utter garbage you spew. (laughs) I know I shouldn't like this stuff, but I do. I really do. It makes me laugh every time. I just enjoy getting it. Uh, and she signed it. Uh, I'm not sure if I, I should. It, Helga. And she gives me her last name, and I feel like I'll just use her initial. Hickman. Helga Hickman. Okay. <laughs> I'm fascinated that somebody sat down at a computer or whatever. At least she didn't send a stamp and says, you are an idiot. And I really uh, enjoy thinking about what motivates someone to do that. Uh, having never done it, uh, I just uh, can't really get into their head like I should, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, I revealed her name because uh, because I don't believe Helga Hickman, I think that's a pseudonym. I'm pretty sure. Now, I've gotten this almost exact letter response many, many times, almost word for word. I had a gentleman who would follow me around uh, when I first began over 20 years ago. Now, my goodness, more than that. I have to think about it. But he would follow me around uh, with a sign. He'd hold up signs at my lectures. He'd attend my lectures and hold up a sign that said, uh, who cares? (laughs) He was my favorite. Comedy is hard. So when one of these people come and heckle you, it gives you a really good opportunity. And so needless to say, uh, this is not new, and it's, it is, my again, my most uh, common hate mail construct. And I must say, usually those who respond, as Helga uh, did there, are themselves professional clergy. They just hide in Internet anonymity. And what I noticed about it is the useless aspect of it. What a useless sermon. Useless isn't what somebody who doesn't like the sermon will say. They will say, you don't make any sense. Um, You just talk about stuff that is worthless, maybe. But useless is interesting to me. I think that tells me who it is. You see, Helga sees no value at all in that particular sermon, which was an Old Testament expository lecture. She doesn't think that the Old Testament lectures have any value. She is focused on the New Testament. As you know, there are churches in this city, in this town, uh, in, the, in the world, in the country, all over, that only give out New Testaments, right? They don't think that it's valuable to you at all to read the Old Testament. Uh, she is focused, uh, Helga is, on the New Testament to the exclusion of the Old Testament, if I am correct, and if this is one of these typical responses that I get. The Old Testament is seen as passed away. Uh, some churches will say that it has been replaced, uh, thus it's useless to, to Helga. And it's common for the uh, replacement churches or the allegorical churches, the, the churches that believe the Old Testament is um, really about the church. Does that make sense? It's not about Israel. It's not literally true. It is about the church now, and it's to be interpreted that way. It's Augustinian. called Augustinian thought. Or theology, replacement theology. Helga, you see, Augustine could not figure out these Old Testament verses that referred to Israel because Israel had been uh, been dispersed. There was no Israel. And those verses didn't make any sense to anybody, frankly, until 19, what? 48, 49. Now there is an Israel. 
Now all those verses, isn't God lucky? Now all those verses make perfect sense. But there still is a large uh, group, uh, the dominant group, that don't believe that Israel has any value at all. Therefore, most of the Old Testament is useless. Helga, I suspect, is most pleased when the sermon that she hears is applicational to Helga. It's got to be for Helga, about Helga, all Helga, all the Helga time. That's what she wants. What we call Helga-centricity, which I just made up. Which is how, by the way, the modern contemporary church functions now. Instead of Christology, we find mostly self-help, motivational, applicational formats. And they throw in some storytelling, don't they, uh, in, in a means to extract um, an emotional reaction or response out of you. They want you to what? Well, their motto is, crying people give more money. So that's the plan. And Dems becomes the two choices. You know, you're either a Christ-centric format or you're a Helga-centric format. You either search the Scripture and find Christ as we're commanded, John 5.39, or you give them what they want, which is what? More about them. The more me approach. It's manipulatively, manipulative, certainly, but it's profitable, and that's the plan. And, and now we have this great divide. I have, as you know, no intention of standing before the throne of Christ, attempting to, to defend uh, lectures that made Helga feel good about herself. I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to get really nasty letters. My intent is to stand there with a record of finding Christ, as I've been commanded to do. And again, I think it's a simple decision. Choose what Helga wants or search for Christ. But I have to concede that Helga has far more who stand with her. It's not even close. The Helgaites overwhelm us. They are legion. And they are deeply committed to themselves. They are passionate. And all sermons, in order to have value, must reference what Helga believes is relevant. This, this dispensation, as she said, that's Helga's dispensation. If you don't understand dispensational thinking, dispensational thinking says that time is divided into sections. And we are in the final dispensational age, the age of the church. That's where Helga is. Helga is here. You are here. That's where she is. That's the New Testament primarily. She wants everything to be there. All these other dispensations, however you may think there are, some will say seven, some will say fewer, but it doesn't really matter. Um, Everyone agrees there are some at least, and I've never met anyone that didn't. Um, But in any event, they argue over how many. All the other dispensational studies are useless garbage. Uh, to people that have this kind of perspective. Never mind that Jesus Christ is the creator of the dispensations, and the dispensations are in a time period, and he is the creator of time itself, and he resides outside of it, therefore. Obviously, uh, that should be factored in. And I don't want to go on and on with Helga as much fun as it is. I'll let it go now. But I actually brought her up today because there's a new atheist production that comes out. And it is, you're going to read about it, it's really big. You have Dawkins and the God delusion and all of that, and they trumpet it, and they do a lot of damage with it to people in churches because the church doesn't ever defend themselves. And I never could understand that because, as I said many, many times, we have the USS Ronald Reagan. They have a rowboat. Why not shoot at them? It's so easy. But the new one is called The Fable of Christ. If you haven't seen this, you're going to, there's nothing new. It's always the same repeated stuff. But it seems new because you just got into the room. My dad used to tell me that all the time. He said, you've just come into the room. You think it's a new room. You don't know that I've been in the room for 85 years. You're wandering around the room thinking, wow, isn't all this stuff brand new? I'm going to leave the room and you're going to be in the room and new people are going to come in and they're going to say to you what they see, what you're saying to me, how new the room is. There's nothing new in the room, Ecclesiastes. It's the same room. Get used to that. 
So the fable of Christ is just another thing that this guy's using to make money, and he's pretending that he's the first to think of it, and he might think that he is. I found that to be true. Helgocentricity and the fable of Christ have the same perspective. They are on the same side, frankly. Helga won't like to hear that. Maybe she'll write me more mail, which I will read. Just to warn you, Helga. You see, the fable of Christ is, or the myth of Christ, or the Christ fantasy, pick a title. They all declare that Jesus Christ never existed. And where have we heard that before? Who always says, who put out the bumper stickers, God does not exist? The argument is never different. The claim being that no written record can be found that proves the existence of the person that is Jesus Christ. That's what they will say. That's what this says. No written record can be found that proves the existence of the person that is Jesus Christ. They disallow the New Testament. Why do they do that? They do that because they say the people that wrote it, the authors, they declare uh, the authors are conspirators. They say that the authors of the New Testament uh, invent out of nothing the person of Christ. They make him up. Authors who simply concocted a story about a man who never was, and complete with fanciful details about what this man said and did. And there is nothing other than Scripture that says that Christ existed. There are no historical accounts. Now, you'll say, what about Pilate? You'll say, what about Josephus? They have their answers to both of those and and any other that you might raise up. They can discredit them all, and they end up with this position that Christ is a myth. He is made up completely a fantasy, the fable of Christ. And, And by the way, they'll say all the authors of the New Testament that did this, that wrote all of this stuff, yes, they'll grant their their martyrdom and all the death that they had to endure and the death of all the young Uh, Christians that came out of uh, what they were taught and said uh, by the original uh, apostles. But they'll say that uh, the motive is the exact same motive for doing this, for concocting a fantasy about a man that never really existed and there is no other written record that they will accept. And that's, by the way, the way it always is. The only evidence that they allow to be evidence is evidence that they allow. Does that make sense? Self-selecting. This is no difference between the Christian account of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. And the purpose is the same. Joseph Smith, uh, he formulated his story about golden plates. You Christians, you formulate your story about whatever. Pick a topic. The resurrection. Crucifixion. Joseph Smith had golden plates. He had Moroni. Ronnie, Maroney, I should be careful, I'll get in, how do you spell it, M, is, oh, is there an I on it, oh, there's an I, okay, okay, thank you, (laughs) Uh, for a while there I thought it was spelled this way, I shouldn't say any of this, but I won't, okay, obviously that's how it's spelled, Joseph Smith came up with Maroney, uh, who would? Never mind. Gosh, the mail will be brutal. And he is, of course, the son of, uh, I can't even spell it. Um, I have to look how to spell it. How about that, isn't it? Yeah, I was right. He is the, the son of Mormon. And, uh, and so he invented this story, and it, it's been quite profitable since 1820, what Joseph Smith said. And, and so the fable of Christ, they realized that uh, the Mormon religion does not have the uh, the strength or the power uh, that the Bible has, and so they they like to associate uh, fundamental or orthodox Christianity with the Mormon faith because the Mormon faith is so easy to discredit. And if we align ourselves with them, if we give them any credence, if we give George, Joseph Smith and Morani and Mormon and all of that stuff that he absolutely uh, wrote out of whole cloth in 1820, then that puts us in the same predicament. By the way, as a, an aside, uh, this is an Arabic, an Arabic city founded in the 10th century in the Indian Ocean. I think Joseph Smith probably knew that. It still exists today. There's about 100,000 people that live there and 
mostly uh, Islam, but there are some other factions there. I think Joseph Smith knew that. He had to have something. His followers, not so much. They never did any investigation, obviously. The point is, is that fables and myths have been utilized to deceive large masses of people, billions of people, uh, and make great amounts of money for the leaders of those particular fables and and myths, and mankind, for goodness sakes, has fashioned gods out of wood, worshipped cows and goats. So it isn't like there isn't a big audience for this. It's the Barnum and Bailey approach to church following or church constructing. So where where is the written proof that Jesus Christ is God himself, as is stated repeatedly without equivocation in the New Testament? That's what they want to know. Where is the proof that one, Christ exists, and where is the proof that he is God himself? And they ask it all the time, and they say, Christ wrote nothing. There's nothing that you just quote him. There's nothing that he wrote. There's no evidence that he that he exists. That's their oft-repeated uh, mantra whenever you debate one of them. Well, for one, where's the proof? I'm not going to allow you to have the New Testament because I, I as the fable writer, I've decided that the New Testament isn't acceptable. Where is your proof that Christ exists now? That's what they'll say to you. So where is your proof? What would you say to them? What would you give them? Remember how we got into this discussion. Helgocentricity. The Old Testament is not useless. The Old Testament is a written record. Duh. Written thousands of years before Christ. Discovered to be unchanged in all of these thousands of years. Its sole singular purpose is to do what? When you understand the purpose of the Old Testament, you discover that it isn't useless because the purpose is one thing over and over and over again. What is it? It is to testify as to the person of Christ. It's what it does. Hardly anybody knows that. It's really a tragic time. To ignore the Old Testament is to concede the enormous volume of prophetic detail that awaits our discovery. God placed them there. God knew, didn't he, that somebody would come along and declare that the New Testament is not acceptable because Christ didn't write it and there's no written record of his existence. So what did God do? He wrote a huge volume. The Old Testament. It's filled to the brim with Christ on every page. And he placed Christ there, himself there. His omniscience well aware that wicked men would sneer and mock as they demand evidence of the existence of God. And the Old Testament is a gigantic treasure trove of evidence. And then the New Testament, what's its purpose ultimately? It's to explain and interpret the Old Testament. How the Old Testament has been Pictures of Christ all along. And so you put them both together. One is the, is the shadows and the other is the explanation of the meaning of the shadows. Both together make it impossible. Once you know that, it's impossible to deny that Jesus Christ is God. He's the Word. He's the author of the book, as a matter of fact. And He's the creator of all things. Nothing exists that does what the Bible does. There is no other book that does this. It's the only one. All you have to do is compare it. People ask me all the time, how do you know the Bible is inspired? God breathed is the literal word, is God's word. All I have to do is find Christ in it. If it has Christ in it, that means that God wrote it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not inspired. It's really pretty simple, actually. Nothing, as I said, exists. No other book exists that does what the Bible does. It interconnects like that. It's amazing. Nor has anything ever existed like it. And nothing could possibly duplicate it. That's our written record. So why would Helga call lectures on Old Testament passages useless? Why would she do that? I find that interesting. Why would any Christian not want the evidence of the Old Testament? 
why does the church today refuse to even read an Old Testament passage? Because they do. Won't even read them. Passed away. And it's the same answer to both of those questions. The reason's the same. Old Testament passages are, I said it earlier, are Christ-centered. They're all portraits of Christ. Every single one. If you're going to stand up here at this podium and talk about Christ, you can find Him in every passage in the Old Testament. All you have to do is sift a little bit and there He'll be. They are not what? Not congregationally centered. And therefore, they correctly, as they should, as they are designed to do, shine light on Christ. Same as the New Testament passages. It's how you can tell if they're God-breathed. It's what he does. God does not shine lights on you and me and glorify us. He doesn't. It's harmful and it's sin. By and large, people attend the megachurches today to get something for themselves. My favorite thing was to go to a church that would hand out uh, and many of you went there. For, if a visitor came in, you got a, a little uh, kit, hygiene kit. What a great idea. Hi, welcome to our, our church. Here's a bar of deodorant. I thought, that's for, here's some, here's some fingernail clippers. Here's, here's some soap for you. That's what we think. Uh, please bring friends. But anyway, they give these little kits out, and everybody loved them because they got something. We came home with something. We won a prize. I've always wanted to do a lottery here, just for the for the fun of it, to raffle off something every Sunday. If you put money into the offering plate, take out a lottery ticket. At the end of the sermon, you will win a hygiene kit. What a great idea, huh? It would be hilarious. But the people attend churches today to get something for themselves. They want something. That's a bad idea. Self-focus is ultimately hedonism. Exactly the path of those who say God is a fable. Christ is a myth. If you decide that there is no God, then what have you concluded? Because all you have to do is look in creation and human humanity is the highest life form. If you decide there is no God, then you have decided that you are the highest life form. What have you now done? You have worshipped yourself. If you decide there is no God, you will worship yourself. You must worship yourself. You might not know it, but that's exactly what you will do. Anyway, all of that sets up today's lecture, Matthew 24, 14 through 30. That's where we find ourselves today. Um, Christ's parable of the talents, which is valuable to understanding Joshua 7, which is where we started as we began to figure out Romans 9. If that makes sense to you, that is because you've been coming way too long. But here we go in that direction, specifically Achan and the hidden, buried, beautiful garment and his likewise buried silver and buried gold. That's what he did. And we're doing that now, but now we've ended up chasing it down into Matthew 14. And I hope that you'll see why as we go through this for the remaining minutes here. I know I wasted a lot of time setting all of that up, but I am a professional. I wanted you to notice the repeating of the buried that I just said. The buried beautiful garment, the likewise buried silver, and the buried gold. That's not arbitrary. I did that on purpose. And don't worry and don't fret. We're going to return to Tamar, Rebecca, uh, the twin sons. The parable of the two sons. Notice I called them twins. That's my position, by the way. I, I think they fit that. The older and the younger brother. The prodigal son, you might say, of Luke 15, 11 through 32. But it is another one of these two sons. So that connects it to Rebekah and to uh, Tamar and, of course, to Eve. And we end up with this older brother serving the younger brother, the breaching, etc. I haven't forgotten that. I have a plan. I know no one thinks so. So here we are now at Matthew 25. You've heard this before, I am sure. Let's see if we can add. Usually when I do this, I use it to prove that God is not evil. I'll do a little bit of that today because there are many people today that, that even in the Christian church that say that God is the author of evil. He rejects that here in Matthew 
25, 14 through 30, in as strong a way as God possibly could reject anything. He rejects the accusation that he is the author of evil. So anytime somebody comes to you and says, God is the one who caused evil, he's the one that made evil, he's the one that put evil in us, he is the evil one, ultimately, uh, there, that, that particular thinking in the church is completely refuted by Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Now, as I go through the highlights of Matthew 25, 14 through 30, I want you to start thinking about the beautiful garment, uh, Joshua 7, the confession of Achan that Achan does to Joshua, that interaction, that exchange that Joshua and Achan have, and how does that event connect to the account of the parables of the town? Okay, so let's read it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own slaves. I'm going to say slaves because I believe that is the correct way for our language to know it today. It says servants for you, but I believe these are slaves who his own slave, uh, who called his own slave, who by the way, a man is traveling and he calls people. Start thinking about that. And delivered his goods to them. In other words, the slaves didn't have anything, and he delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. By the way, is Christ, did he come? Did he call people? Did he leave? Yeah. So what are we, what's the story about? It's Christ-centric, isn't it? But you're in the story. You're either the guy with five, you're the guy with two, or you're the guy with one. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them. Ah, who is the them that he traded with? That becomes very important. These them show up all the time. And, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. Okay, I'll help you out. Achan's children went and dug a hole and hid something of God's. No. But Achan also hid something that belonged to God, didn't he? That's how we start collecting these kinds of things. After a long time, the Lord of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents, notice it was a long time. It's a long time. God takes a long time. So he had received five talents, came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. By the way, what does ruler mean to God? It means you got a robe and you got a big stick and you get to pronounce things. When you're a ruler in God's world, what are you? Now, you're probably a janitor. No offense to janitors. I was one for the Alaska Railroad. It was the most amazing experience to clean toilets on cars of which there were a hundred people in one bathroom. That was my job. I'd get a hazmat suit on and 200 degree steam. Probably hotter than that, but they tuned it down enough so that I wouldn't blow myself up. And I would walk into these facilities and just spray them with steam until it was all gone. There was a, a thing in the in the bottom of the floor that you just pulled it up and just blasted everything. That was a fascinating job. Uh, it taught me a lot. And I love janitors to this day. And never be a janitor without some kind of high-pressure steam system. That's my rule for life. It's the best way to go. But when you're a ruler with God, He makes you do things for the sake of the people you're ruling. Think motherhood. You're not going to run around and go, you served me. That's not what ruler means to God. It means serving others. I will make you ruler over many things. What's the obvious question there? Notice what he didn't say. I will make you ruler over other people's 
You didn't say that. Many things. What are the many things you're going to do? Sheetrock? Gardening? You know, sweeping the streets? I will make you ruler over many things. I will <laughs> enter into the... Okay, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, or just well done is in italics, it's not in the text. Well, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Notice that they're identical. Then he came to the... Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. What's he accusing him of? Being a thief. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your, because I knew you were evil and hard. And I was afraid, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. There's a question mark that should be there. Most Bibles don't have it. but Rightfully, it should be there. And gather where I have not scattered seed. I'm sorry, it should be at the end of seed. That's the question. Notice it said, his, the Lord answered. So you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? You knew that? So you ought then to have deposited my money with the bankers. and at my, Who are the bankers? And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So that take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has more will be given, and he who will have abundance, and he will have abundance, but from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is very mysterious, that last verse, by the way. Okay, let's notice a few things. First, a talent in the context, right, in biblical times was what? Don't think America's got talent. Don't do that, okay? That's not it. That's going to lead you into the ditch every time. It's very common. Well, God gave me this talent, and my talent is to... Uh, Whatever. No. Talent in biblical times is money. And it has a tremendous amount of weight to it. It's heavy. That's the context and the implication. In fact, it's, it's considered as, min, as much, this is a majority view, and I don't always agree, but I will today, that it's 6,000 uh, denaria. Denarii. Denarius. Okay, uh, that is... Uh, that's one denarius is a day's wages. That's 6,000 days wages. So you can do the math while I go on. The guy's got five of those. He's got 30,000 days wages. Average day's salary now, if you're not a government worker, sorry. That's a, you don't work for the municipality of Anchorage. Your average wages for a day would be about uh, between 150 and 200 dollars. If you're in the political class, it's five times that. Uh, I, never mind. <laughs> there are two classes now. You recognize that. There's the political class and the non-political class. I am in the non-political class. I don't think that everybody can be in the wagon. But that's a lot of money, and it's heavy, and it's gold, or it's silver, or it's both. Remember Achan now, what did he have buried? Okay, the disciples would have heard when Christ started saying a talent, they would know that's a massive amount of money for that day. They would have only interpreted Christ's word that way. They would never have. A talent is not. A talent is not what we define talent as today, which is the ability to perform something, singing or athletic 
or whatever. Clearly, though, the talent in this parable represents something of greater significance than gold or silver or financial wealth. So the first question is, what is the meaning of talent? God came, called, and gave people one or some. And we solve that by collecting all the evidences or the clues, if you will. Whatever it represents, salvation is at stake. That should be obvious, huh? One guy buries his, and what happens to him? Utter darkness. Weeping, gnashing. What he has is, he says, he, him who has nothing, take it away. Give it to the other guy. So salvation is at stake. That should be obvious. So singing and dancing is not the answer. Our salvation is not dependent on our singing or dancing ability, where we all say, thank God, right? Amen, brother. It is equally obvious that whatever the talent symbolizes, it's given. The talent is a given thing. When God gives you something, why does he do it? Because there's no other way to get it to you. You can't earn it. So it's something that is given. The implication being is that it is not earned. So what is it again? And we begin as we did. We repeat it on a journey. Christ on a journey. Calling his slaves and giving them his property. So it belongs to God. So there, it is God's property. Whatever it is. So what we're trying to do is solve what a talent is. And what we've decided is salvation is at stake. It has to be given and it belongs to God. So far, so good. And in this case, this is Christ who is God and he makes you to understand that it belongs to him. And what, who does he give it to? He gives it to slaves. And who are the slaves? Slaves of who? His slaves. So God comes and gives something to his slaves and it's his property. And that is fundamental to this parable, as it is likewise fundamental in the event of Jericho, because I have a similar thing there, don't I? These are things, these talents are things that belong to God, it's his property. In Jericho, I have things that belong to God, it's his property. Somebody buries it in in the story of Jericho. Somebody buries it here. That's how the two begin to mesh together. It's fundamental. These are the things that are God's. Next, God distributes his property on the basis of what? Says so. On the basis of ability. One guy gets five talents. Another guy gets two, one guy gets one, based on their ability. What's the obvious question? We have yet to define talent. Now we've got to figure out what ability means. Two questions now. To figure out, well, actually three. Who are the slaves? Why does he call them slaves? What is it that he gives them? What is a talent? Uh, Based on what? What is this ability? We have to correctly define this ability. What exactly is ability in the context of Matthew 25, 14 through 30? It is told, if you will, it's implied to us that the talent and the ability can be combined in some way as to produce an increase in the property that belongs to God. Does that make sense? I, he gives us something based on our ability. We can take that something and add our ability to it and make it bigger. Get a return on it, if you will. The ability can somehow invest or multiply the God, I'm sorry, the gold and the silver. But uh, be very aware of something here. The slave receives none of what he produces. All of the talent is God's, and he takes it all. So, you would think, okay, logically, you give me a thousand dollars, I go down to the Horse race track, I invested on Lucky Steve in the first race, and Lucky Steve comes in first, of course, and Lucky Steve pays uh, 20 to 1, and I bring back 
$20,000 to you, and you say, thanks. See you later? No, no, no. I get a piece of that. I'm the one that I figured out Lucky Steve was going to win in the third race. He's a mutter, runs good in cold weather, a little on the heavy side. He's mean and he'll bite other horses. He'll trip them. He'll do what he's got to do. I bet on him and I should get some of that, right? No, it's not what the story says. You take the talent, your ability with the talent multiplies the talent somehow. It all belongs to God. You don't get any of the talents. God owns everything. The slave receives this. The slave receives well done. Again, done in italics. Good. Faithful, ruler, and enter in joy. That's what the slave gets. Those five things. God gets all the gold and the silver. Is that fair? Please say yes. Don't say no. Good grief. The slave, to repeat now, the slave has an ability and the slave has a decision-making element here, doesn't he? He has what I will call a free will contribution to this agreement that he and God have now of some sort. That makes people mad. But it is obvious that he has a free will contribution. There are many, many people in the church today that says there is no free will. Again, this parable tells you wrong. But the slave receives no profit, for lack of a better word. The slave gets the well done, the good, the faithful ruler, and enter. Now, the slave with five talents went and traded... Uh, with them, another word uh, that we have to define now, traded. We've got to figure out what traded means. Uh, uh, so we've got ability, we have talent, we have traded. Uh, we need to know who the slaves are. Where are you? Which which are you in this story? Are you the them? But uh, And the first slave gained five more talents. He has 30,000 uh, pieces of gold and silver, if you will. The second also gains two more. And both slaves receive exactly the same word for word response from God. It is just like the parable where some go into the field early, some come in at midnight, 11.59, they walk in the field, they both get the same wage. Is that fair? You've been there all day working in the field, somebody else comes in 11.59, gets the same that you get. Is that fair? Say yes. You can't earn your salvation. It's infinite. Salvation is infinite in value. How do you earn infinity? I was there for 11 hours and 59 more minutes than that guy. I deserve more infinity. There's your logic. Please recognize that that's foolish thinking. Okay, so they get the exact same thing, which I would expect, and that gives you a clue as to what a talent is, right? The third slave does what? He buries God's property and hides it. That should ring your Aiken bell now, right? And finally, this incredible conversation that I outlined already occurs between the third slave and Jesus Christ. The exchange is critical to correctly interpreting this parable. And by the way, only God himself could have written this and interconnected it to his Old Testament. We'll get to that next week. Too much is contained in it. It's far too complex. What it is is fantastic proof that Jesus Christ exists. Because no apostle could have wrote this story. He didn't even know what he was writing if he wrote it. Anyway, 
If you make a mistake with the third slave, the passage will remain closed. It's just like the rich Pharisee and Lazarus. If you start feeling sorry for the rich Pharisee in the story of Lazarus and the rich Pharisee, then you have erred so greatly you won't understand that true event. Same thing will happen here. If you're feeling sorry for the third slave, if you're saying, I'm like the third slave, I'd be scared and I'd hide it and I wouldn't take any chances and then I'd get thrown into hell the two, just like the third slave, then you don't understand that the third slave is profoundly evil. And, and he's saying evil things. And he's accusing God of being evil. And he's lying on every single sentence. Every single thing he says, just like the rich Pharisee who says, send Lazarus, give me a little drop of water, I'll tell my brothers. All of that is evil. All of that is a lie just like him. Recognizing when evil is, is put in front of you is very good to know. By the way, Achan didn't do that. God calls him the wicked slave. That's God calling him that. What's the chances that God got it right? If you don't think he's a wicked slave, what's the chances you got it wrong? A hundred percent. Obviously, the wicked slave didn't care about the incredibly valuable gift that he was given. Didn't care about it that belonged to God. He immediately did what with it? As soon as he got it, he buried it and hid it. Who's he hiding it from? God? Hardly. Because as the slave says, and he says it to the face of God, I knew you to be evil. Stealing, you are a thief. You steal what is not yours. You do not sow anything. You don't do nothing. And then you, you don't even scatter seed. You're unjust. You're a liar. That's what he says to God. But he says this, I have outsmarted you. Read it. You will see that that's what he said. I have outsmarted you, God. You can't judge me. Matthew fourteen twenty four through 25. Again, if you found yourself agreeing or having sympathy with the third slave, uh, rut row. Big problem. The third slave is repeating the lie of Satan directly to the face of Jesus Christ. He dares Christ to answer him. And Christ does answer him, doesn't he? Which we will get into next week. But to recap a little bit. What does God give? What does he give you? And it belongs to him. He's the only one that has it. And after he gives it to you, there's a judgment going to come. An accounting. That's the easy question that you should have already answered without me. The harder questions come next week. As the musicians come forward, a traditional event with great pomp and circumstance and majesty, after many, many repetitions and practices, they all come forward in the correct order, at the correct cadence. And now would you please rise and be dismissed.